Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Uh, we are so grateful that you would choose to join us in worship, whether you are here in person or joining us online today. Thank you for being a part of this church and this community. Uh, and this morning, as you just heard, I have the opportunity uh, to talk us through something that's been sitting at the forefront of our minds, particularly in this culture, and that is the idea of Christian suffering. Yes, the exact topic that when you woke up this morning and decided to get ready for church and you're driving here, you're thinking, man, I really hope we talk about Christian suffering because nothing brings me more joy than Christian suffering. But that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about Christian suffering, Christian persecution, and I say that it's at the forefront of our mind because quite honestly, I think there's a little bit of an obsession by the Western evangelical church as it relates to persecution. And how do I know this? Uh, well, I didn't pull any data on this. Uh, mostly it's, it's anecdotal from my life and my experience. You see, I, I'm 31 years old. Uh, I'm not like the oldest person in this room by far, but when I was a high school student, like a freshman in high school, maybe even an eighth grader, uh, I was told this myth of a student who attended Columbine, Christian, uh, Columbine High School and the student was martyred for her faith during those events. Uh, the myth goes, the story goes, that this student was asked directly if she was a Christian, and when she replied yes, the gunman killed her. And at the same time, I was given a book called Jesus Freak by the band DC Talk. And I was young, I didn't know anything about music, but I'd heard DC Talk was like, pretty good. Uh, and so I opened up this book and uh, I realized very quickly that it was uh, a collection of dozens and dozens of stories uh, from people around the world who had been martyred for their faith. And I was raised with this belief that at some point, some entity, whether it's an individual or a group, uh, maybe the government, someone, someplace in time would attempt to challenge me and challenge my faith. And so I must be ready at all times, at all costs. And then I was taught uh, church apologetics. I was very, at a very early age, taught how to defend my faith. At church camp, uh, I attended as many breakout sessions as I possibly could so that I could learn more and more about how to respond to people if they mocked me for my faith. I went to school ready to like start an argument with that atheist that sat in my class that wore like the shirt with the upside down cross. I was like, you, like, let's go, let's go. My pastor at the time preached that we have to always be ready to give a defense for the gospel. He preached that society was, was getting worse, that our culture was getting worse, and that someday uh, something was coming, that there would be this great outbreak of persecution in America. So at a very young age, I was gifted this constant fear, this constant anxiety that the person sitting next to me in my classroom that my teammate on my baseball team, that person walking past me in a trench coat, might lash out at me, might uh, address my faith, might confront me about the things that I believed. And then at that moment, I had a split-second decision. Do I sit back and say no, or do I spring into action and follow through on my faith? 
And if these anecdotes don't resonate with you, then just think about the popularity of books and movies such as Left Behind. Think about the ways that news stories on Christian networks are often framed. Think about the number of times you've heard the phrase, uh, just in the last month, Christianity is under attack, or how often you hear about massive companies and organizations taking Christ out of Christmas. We talk about it all the time. It's a thing that we are primed to think about. We are primed to talk about persecution. We are primed to observe everything and then see those small subtleties that make us shout, there it is. There it is. I was absolutely right. See, I told you this was going to happen because when you're searching for a sign, it is amazing how often you can find one. And so I think it's important today that we take some time this morning and really jump into what Peter writes here in this letter. I think it's important for us to take a long, deep look at what is being presented here so that we can better be prepared and so that we can have a better understanding of what exactly Peter is discussing in this letter. And so this morning, we're just going to walk through this passage in stages. And as we're going, we'll look back uh, through history for more context before we attempt to apply it in these words, these thoughts to our time here in 2021, which is crazy that it's almost 2022. I don't like to think about it. Anyway, let's begin starting in verse 12. Peter writes, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This passage, uh, we're starting in the middle of a chapter, and so it is uh, continuing the thoughts from the preceding section. And there, Peter once again addresses these churches in Asia Minor, and he reminds them of the importance of living in a way that is actually representative of who Jesus is. They're commanded to love one another, to be alert, to show hospitality to one another and to outsiders. But right at the start of chapter one, Peter offers these words. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. These opening verses, these opening thoughts here serve as a premonition of what Peter is about to present to us. Since Christ has already suffered in the past, just know that you yourselves, uh, as little Christs in the world, uh, as followers who have been charged with modeling your life after him, know that you ought to be mentally prepared for the same experiences, some form of suffering. Which is why he can then transition into this idea of just don't be surprised as we see in verse 12. And he can do this because, and this is your first fill in the blank, suffering is expected. Suffering is expected. These Christians, according to Peter, in his eyes, if they have done the work, if they have already armed, if they have done the work and they have already armed themselves, already prepared themselves for a situation that might require just a little bit of suffering. By adjusting their lives and attitudes to come into alignment with the person of Jesus, they are already creating friction with their culture and with their society. And so whenever suffering and persecution happen to these Christians in these churches, it should be thought of as something anticipated and expected. And it should be expected because this suffering serves as an act of participating in the sufferings of Christ. Again, the goal of the Christian faith is to experience unity with Christ. In the same way that we hope to experience union in the blessings of Christ, new life, eternity with God, 
then we must also understand that we will experience union with his death and resurrection, which is symbolically represented through baptism, but then also subsequently in suffering on the cross. We have to be prepared to experience union there. We can't merely go about the Christian faith and just cherry pick those parts of Jesus's life that are most favorable to us because we already know everyone in Temecula would just pick that part where Jesus turned water into wine. (laughs) Instead, we have to be prepared to experience the entirety of life, of the life of Jesus when we choose to follow after him. But this suffering at the hands of those who wish to mock us, those who misunderstand our faith, it's not just for us to earn some type of heavenly participation trophy that we can just tote around like, look at me, I did it, I participated. Uh, These experiences of suffering help us to enrich our faith. And here we learn that suffering is purifying. In verse 12, Peter refers to suffering as a fiery ordeal a fiery ordeal. And this isn't new language for Peter. In fact, uh, he is just reintroducing this idea that he discussed at the beginning of the letter in chapter one, where he writes, uh, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter here is utilizing a common theme from the Old Testament. It's this practice of purifying metal uh, and viewing that process as a metaphor uh, for one's faith journey. And at its core, it communicates that seasons of difficulty can be used by God as a means of further developing those who are faithful. And we're just going to run through some examples here. We see it uh, in Proverbs chapter 27. The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. And we see it again in Psalm 66. For you, God, tested us, refined us like silver. And then again, we see it in Malachi, where God's speaking through the prophet to inform the people of a messenger who will come in order to refine. Malachi 3, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. This passage from Malachi 3 is our most direct comparison to what Peter is attempting to do here. He is drawing on this imagery of refining silver, of refining gold, these precious metals to remind his readers, these people in these churches, that sometimes suffering can be useful. And this process of entering into a fire isn't meant to be understood as a means of torture. It isn't meant to be used as a a method of punishment. Rather, it is to be understood as a means of just drawing out the best versions of ourselves. And when I read through this section, uh, I was read through, past tense. Uh, I'm not like I'm making it up on the spot. That'd be ridiculous. Uh, but when I read through this section, I was reminded of this show on Netflix called Blown Away. Has anyone heard of this show? A handful. One. Okay. <laughs> and it's not exactly a direct comparison, but the similarities are close enough that I feel like I can talk about it and allow us a little bit of space to like breathe just a bit. Uh, and so Blown Away is this glass-blowing uh, competition show which seems like a thing that I wouldn't be interested in, but I promise you it's amazing. Uh, 
They take these contestants, these people who've been crafting glass for years, decades, uh, and they put them into a competition against one another. All these people are gifted, they're skilled, they're not like newbies at this thing. They've been doing it for a long time. And they take these contestants, they gather them together, they place them in a refinery, give them every tool they could ever possibly need so that they can create beautiful pieces of art. And if you've never seen anyone make glass, it is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. What they do essentially, uh, not essentially, this is actually what they do. Uh, I Googled it. They take these rods of glass. Uh, they can be clear or they can have color in them. Uh, and sometimes if they don't want to use a rod of glass, they'll use like a, like a pile of glass powder that's been crushed down really finely. Uh, and they take that glass and they stick it into the middle of an incredibly hot furnace. Not like your oven or like my pizza oven that gets to like 800 degrees. This is like 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It is extremely hot. And so they take this glass, they stick it in the middle of this furnace, and they do this in order to get the glass to a state where it's metal, or molten, 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 liquefied. That's a better term. Uh, they get it to a state where it has been completely melted down, and then they attach this molten glass to these tubes, these long tubes, and they begin to blow air out of the tube, and while they're blowing the air out, they're rotating and spinning the glass. And they do it slowly, and this whole process gives the glass its shape is only by superheating the glass, by turning it over and over again. It is only by applying heat and pressure that they're able to create these wonderful works of art. It is together with that heat and the hands of the creator that these plain glass rods become something that is exponentially more valuable. According to Peter, it is a similar experience with our faith. The suffering that we might experience serves as a fire that turns us over and over and over. And when we allow God into our suffering, we can then be shaped and purified, given new life. We can be rid of our impurities. We can become better, stronger, more sanctified followers of Jesus. And this is a drastically different approach, a drastically different perspective than we might assume. Because the common narrative for so many individuals is that suffering is a weakness. That suffering is this problem for us to solve, that it's something to escape from. But Peter shares here that we should actually maintain the opposite perspective. He writes, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so while we might view suffering as a time where God's hand is no longer upon us, Peter counters that God is actually blessing us through that process. In Peter's eyes, if you suffer, you are not abandoned. If you suffer, you have not been abandoned. Rather than view a situation of suffering as the absence of God, Peter writes that if you suffer as a Christian, one who is actively following Jesus, then God's spirit is resting upon you. And this image ought to remind us of scenes like those at Pentecost in the book of Acts or at Jesus' baptism where the spirit of God fell like tongues of flame or rested on Jesus as a dove. And this is also a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 11, which reads, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. 
When we go through these trials, when we go through these periods of time where we feel as if we are in the process of being purified by the fire, then we should know and we should understand that God is with us. When we are going through difficult seasons, we should understand that in those moments, God has not left us. God has not left us to fend for ourselves. God has stayed present with us in that moment, and God's spirit dwells upon us. What we see here is Peter attempting to combat a culture that is all about blessing. He's attempting to further develop the ideas of these Christian churches in Asia Minor because if these churches are familiar with the history of Israel, they might be able to discern a pattern of behavior that has developed over time. You see, the earliest covenants that God created with the people of Israel were, to our perspective, they were black and white covenants. If you do this, then I will do this. If you obey my commands, then I will make you a great nation. If you follow my laws, then I will ensure these promises. And so when the nation stopped doing those things, they would then see consequences for their behavior. And so when the nation stopped following God's laws, God would then send a prophet to deliver a message of repentance. And if the people chose to reject that prophet, to not listen to that message, to not repent, then God would send outside forces to come and they would enter into the city. The greatest example of this is the nation of Babylon. And the people would cry out to God and then they would eventually repent and return to their old way of life, doing things as they absolutely should have been from the beginning. And that is how things were supposed to be. But we start to see this repetitive cycle of the nation just rejecting what God asks and rejecting what God offers to them, and then finding themselves doing this over and over and over. And so from this, this, this history, from this repetitive cycle, there were newer angles on humanity's relationship with, with God that ended up developing. And it was this, if you just do what God wants you to do, then you are going to be blessed. And if you're having a, a hard time right now, if you feel like you're not being blessed by God, it means that probably you're doing something wrong that you should probably go out and repent because you're not living in a way that is receiving the blessing of God. And so we see this at the core of teachings uh, from the prosperity gospel, or folks who emphasize health and wealth, which is if you have faith in God, if you have genuine faith in God, then you are going to experience remarkable blessing. If you truly have favor in God's eyes, then you are going to be healed. Suffering won't be a part of your life anymore. And if you're experiencing any of those things, you're not practicing genuine faith. And so here's a list of 1,500 things that you should go home and work on so that you can achieve these blessings. This line of thinking, though, we chuckle at it. But it kind of makes sense, right? Because it's human nature to attempt to find a solution to the problem of our pain. It is human nature to try and figure out why we are suffering, why we might be experiencing a trial, why everything seems to hurt all the time. And when we search for that answer, the easiest solution for us is that we just, we must not have enough faith. Because if God is perfect, if God is perfect, then the problem must be with me. I must have done something wrong. I must have drifted off the path. And so we pull these snippets of scripture about Jesus promising abundant life, 
Proverbs that address blessings, psalms that discuss rewards for the faithful so that we can create this nice, clean package for how to understand what is happening in our lives and in the lives of other people. We attempt to boil it all down into this box, but God refuses to fit neatly inside of a box. God refuses to be contained. God refuses to allow uh, the relationship with humanity to simply be defined by a formula. Sometimes what is happening around us is absolutely confusing. Sometimes the answer isn't always clear to us. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed, but that doesn't mean that God has left us. That doesn't mean that God has chosen to remain silent or that we've just been abandoned and left here to suffer alone. What it does mean is that we ought to reach a place in our faith where we can simply see the larger picture, the wider perspective. Because it's in our nature to attempt to ascribe a reason or a purpose to the pain that we are experiencing. But on a recent episode of a podcast that I love called The Bible for Normal People, uh, Duke Divinity professor Kate Bowler said something that really uh, connected with me about how to approach these words here. And she said, I no longer live in a world where God's reasons are immediately discernible to me. When we attempt to find immediate solutions to our pain, immediate answers to all of our questions, when we search frantically for the purpose behind why God might be allowing us to suffer for some time, we miss the opportunity to experience the Spirit of God dwelling on us in that moment. We miss the opportunity to participate in the sufferings of Christ. We miss the opportunity to focus on all of the ways that we are currently actively being refined by the fire, all of the ways that God is making art through our pain. Because when we suffer, especially when we suffer, God is simply leaning into us. God is pressing into us to remind us, you are not alone. And so the trajectory of our faith journey is that we eventually move to the space where we're not immediately trying to figure it out. And rather, we just trust that God is here and God is taking me somewhere. God is at work in us. God is at work in you. God is at work in me. I am not alone and God has never abandoned me. God is still here in the midst of my pain. But Peter is very clear about something, about suffering. This is a part of the passage I don't think you really want to miss. He continues writing in verse 15. He says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. What Peter is essentially saying here is that not all suffering is sacred. Not all suffering is sacred. Peter's thoughts on suffering, particularly as they relate to the Christians here in Asia Minor, is that this isn't just some umbrella term for you to throw out that includes every single instance of suffering. He's not saying that every time you experience friction in your life that you are blessed. I mean, I suffered the other day through a devastating ninth inning game. (laughs) Game five of the Giants-Dodgers series. But just because I suffered in that moment doesn't mean that God's spirit was resting on me while I sat on my couch yelling at my TV. It doesn't mean that God is resting on me in those moments, comforting me. And it doesn't mean that my suffering for a team and through some questionable calls by umpires, it doesn't mean any of that is sacred or holy. 
What Peter's referring to here are these particular instances, these situations that fall under the category of bearing the name of Christ. And so he takes some time to clarify what he actually means by this. And well, really, he doesn't say what he means. He says what he does not mean by this. And so here he points out some examples that would be pretty apparent to us uh, as reasons for not bearing the name of Christ, right? He says, don't be a murderer. Probably not bearing the name of Christ when you're killing people. Don't be a thief. Don't be any other kind of criminal. And logically, again, this makes sense to us. We can't go around breaking laws, living selfishly, and hope for some reason or whatever that we are covered and protected by God's blessing. We can't ignore God's laws and then fully believe that we shouldn't experience the consequences of our own actions. So yes, don't be a criminal. But then Peter throws in this word that is brand new to us. The Greek here is Allah tree episkopos, which is insane. Uh, wildly difficult to say. I just wanted to think that I could do it and I have it written out phonetically and I still messed it up. But the crazy thing about this word, uh, that one, uh, is that Peter is the only person, the only person in the New Testament to use this word. And what's more, this word doesn't appear in anywhere else in the Greek literature that we use to compare New Testament writings to. The only person in recorded history to have used this word is Peter. It's like a word that he made up himself and it's been translated here for us as meddler. Other translations will say mischief maker, busy body, coveter of others, things. And when we break down this word into its core components and we translate them literally, it means one who acts like an overseer in the affairs of another without having jurisdiction. It carries the weight of someone who is deeply concerned about what is happening in somebody else's life when they have no need to be concerned. It's the sense of moral superiority because of their Christian faith. Like this person just knows better. Like this person, as an extension of their faith, has the ability to determine the behaviors of those around them, particularly unbelievers. And none of us know people like that, right? Because what Peter is essentially describing here is an early church caring. This person who has no business putting their nose in other people's business, but does it anyway. And so what that tells us is that at this time, just a few years after Jesus walked on earth, there is already a culture in the church that carried itself in a way that is entitled, that carries itself in a way that says, I know more than you that people were already holding their thoughts and their beliefs with such certainty. And they were using their faith and their understanding of who God is as a means to assert their moral dominance over their peers. It is already happening in this church. And so these people are just projecting their own standards on people and expecting these folks to fall in line, even though some of these people aren't Christians and they haven't signed up for this type of life. They don't actually believe these things but they're being forced to live in a way that says that they do. And so Peter obviously knows about people who are entering into non-Christian establishments, non-Christian places, and attempting to become the moral police, the culture police, the this is appropriate police. And when the crowds of people turned on them, these people would cry about their suffering. Oh man, uh, I, I went to this place and it was awful. They'd go back to their friends and they'd tell the stories about how they went out into the world and how they suffered for Christ, because it's just so hard to be a Christian sometimes. So Peter uses the space in this letter to remind people that it is absolutely possible to bring suffering upon yourself. 
And that if you were to bring it upon yourself based on your actions or your attitude and the way that you impose your beliefs on other people or you just get caught up in other people's business because you just can't help yourself. He's saying, that's not sacred suffering. That's not what I'm talking about here. That is not what I am addressing. Rather, sacred suffering. This type that Peter is talking about comes as a byproduct of living like Jesus. It comes as a result of just brushing up against a culture that is unlike you. It comes from modeling Jesus over and over again and lowering yourself and serving others and refusing to partake in the ways and the systems of the old world. Sacred suffering costs us something. And it costs us more than our comfort. And it comes when we align ourselves with Jesus and we attempt to be models of him in every aspect of our lives. It comes when we are reunited in our faith and in our acting, in our behaviors with God. And so then, as we turn the corner and we start to wrap things up, what does this mean for us? What are the essential things that we ought to take away? And as the band comes up uh, again, I'll start to close this out for us. First, even though suffering is something that is to be expected, we should understand very clearly that persecution is not a metric. Persecution is not a metric for our faith. It's not a measurement of the quality of our faith. And because we live in a competitive society, it's really easy for us to look across at our neighbor to look across at someone and start to compare the strength of our faith. However, we can't place ourselves in situations where we are upset because we aren't being persecuted. We can't become people who have shifted the goal of the Christian faith from being Christ-like to being beat up. That's not what it's about. And if you're in a situation where you are experiencing suffering because you are attempting to do things that Jesus did, then that does not make you any more faithful than someone who was doing those things just without the suffering. And in the same way, we can't become people who just seek out persecution and seek out suffering. We can't allow ourselves to become people who put ourselves into situations solely for the purpose of experiencing these moments of affliction and persecution. That is what I call clickbait Christianity. Clickbait is this journalistic practice where you create an article title that is meant to just only give a glimpse of the picture. It's meant to cause a little bit of frustration while you're reading. It's meant to be irritating and incendiary solely for the purpose of getting that reader to click that link. And some of, an example of this is you'll never guess, guess this son's response to I love you or seven reasons why your business is failing or here is why your kid thinks that you are a bad parent. All of these titles are a flash of the pan. You're like, oh, am I a bad parent? I want to know more about that. They're meant to stir a reaction. And some of us have started to approach our faith in the same way. We might enter into a store in a manner that is meant to provoke a response. We might post something online because it's just going to rile up those folks. Clickbait Christianity sensationalizes the faith in order to stir controversy so that we might experience some conflict and suffering, so that we might rally more Christians, so that we might flex our faith, so that people might know that we are in the right and we have been enlightened and we are witnesses to Jesus and they are wrong. But that approach isn't serving Jesus. It's only serving you. That is not the faith that we are called by Peter to live out. That is not the example that Christ set before us. That isn't the suffering that Peter defends. We cannot seek out suffering. 
We cannot make suffering the thing that we worship. It must always be Jesus, and we can't make it the thing we worship because suffering only exists because this is not our home. This is the thing I talked about several weeks ago, the last time I was up on the stage, and what Peter writes here echoes those same thoughts from chapter two. We are foreigners. We are refugees. This earth is just a temporary holding space for us. It's a stepping stone on the path towards glory. When we resist culture, when we live like Jesus, when we take on the attitude of Christ, yes, we might suffer, but that suffering serves to continue to point us forward. And someday there will be a time when we suffer no more. Someday there will be a day when the hope of the world covers all people and we can once again be reunited with our creator, but we are not there yet. So we follow Jesus. We serve others. We humble ourselves. We take on the attitude of Christ. We live different lives. We clean up after ourselves because we are simply passing through on the way towards the end. And the end for us is glory. The hope that at the end of all of our suffering at the end of our lives, that we would experience heaven, that we would experience the fullest unity with God. So we would do well to remember that every time we experience affliction and persecution, we are just participants in God's coming goodness, God's coming glory. That in our sacred suffering, we have parallel participation with Christ on the cross. And as we suffer, as we feel heavy, as we feel low, we just look to him. We remember to look to Jesus, the one who knew no sin yet chose to carry the sin of man on the cross that we could be redeemed. We remember the glory of Jesus Christ as it sustains us through the darkest places of our lives. You see what Peter is trying to teach us here, what he's trying to teach this audience in Asia Minor is an expanded theology of suffering. He's trying to show us that we can't simply focus on the best parts of our lives because that's merely a life half-lived. Rather, Peter wants us to take it all in, to absorb the fullness of ourselves, the fullness of our lives, the fullness of our experiences so that we can learn to suffer well. Because so much of the current cultural conversation is to avoid or to bypass the negative experiencing. It's good vibes only. There's no bypassing suffering. There's no bypassing pain. There's no way to bypass the conflict that will ultimately come when you choose to live your life like Jesus and model your life after your, his behavior. So the question for us is your lived theology avoiding dealing with suffering. Are you attempting to sidestep the most painful parts of your life? Are you looking for ways to work through it? Are you attempting to work out your faith in that manner of fear and trembling, of not knowing the reason, of not knowing the purpose, of not being able to clearly discern where God is working, how God is working? Or are you wielding your theology like a blanket, hoping to just cover up the worst parts of yourself, those parts that hurt the most? Because in the midst of your pain, in the midst of of the hardest seasons of your life, in the middle of whatever suffering or persecution you might have experienced, you might currently be experiencing, or you might experience in the future, God is with you. God has not abandoned you. God still loves you. God wants to be with you in the full spectrum of your life. And Peter reminds us that God has been, currently is, and always will be faithful to us. So let us remember the faithfulness of our God. Let us rejoice in the strength of a God who overcomes all things, one who invites us to be a part of the journey. Will you pray with me? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. 
If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.